Welcome to the CBIA BizCast. I'm your host, Allie Warshavsky. And today on our podcast, we're speaking with Colin Cooper, who is retiring from being the state's first chief manufacturing officer. We're going to look back at his time in that role and also look ahead to see what's next for Colin. He's been a guest on this podcast quite a few times. We're happy to have him back. Welcome back to the podcast. Great. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And good afternoon to you. Well, now that you're retiring from this position, something that a few of us were wondering at CBIA is if you knew what you know now when you started, what would you do differently? I think that if I were starting all over again, I would push for some more resources for this office uh, up front. I freely would talk to people and they'd say, well, you know, I'll talk to somebody in your, uh, in, uh, on your staff or in your department. I, I said, I'm a department of one. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, getting some, uh, perhaps some administrative help up front would be dedicated administrative help up front would help leverage the time here um, in, in this and, and, and maybe, you know, cover some more ground and maybe focus more on uh, strategic issues um, there's a lot of time that's consumed just sort of on tactical and administrative issues. So building a little bit more of a team. And of course, you were the first one. So you really were the guinea pig here. And you took this position right before COVID, correct? How did that impact your role or what you think <laughs> your role would have been if we weren't in a public health emergency right now? It, it impacted everybody's role everywhere, right? I mean, we're all doing things that we never imagined that we'd be doing you know, two years ago, uh, but it had a significant impact on, on, on this position. I started in uh, November, really started in November of 2019, and I was uh, really focused on getting out into the manufacturing community, speaking with business leaders and trying to understand uh, what their headwind issues were. I, I certainly had my list of issues from 20 years of running and, and growing a manufacturing business in Connecticut, but I wanted to see if there was a consensus amongst uh, other uh, business leaders, and that would sort of help me prioritize my uh, time and efforts. And, and clearly there was. Uh, it became clear right off the bat that the top issue was uh, uh, it was workforce development, access to a skilled labor force. And so I was probably three months into it um, and, and then the world changed. And um, I remember uh, being in some meetings, talking to some companies with um, some uh, operations around the globe, particularly in, uh, uh, in Asia, and uh, really getting a much better sense of uh, what was happening over in China with the pandemic. And we were, and, and talking with people back here, my sense were, was that people were a little, uh, little deer in the headlights. People, we didn't quite know or fully appreciate what was coming at us and how it was going to impact us. So um, I actually reached out to uh, uh, the folks at Pratt & Whitney who have operations in China, and they also have operations out in Seattle, which is where it first landed here in North America. And they had been dealing with COVID in those regions for, for a month at that time. They're also a very large, sophisticated company. And, and I knew that they would have already um, sort of mobilized an action plan and, and uh, reached out to them and asked if they would uh, uh, 
uh, address. We, we weren't doing full-blown Teams meetings or WebExes uh, at that time or Zoom calls, uh, but we, we set up with the help of the folks at CBIA uh, a conference call where we had well over, I think, 250 Connecticut manufacturers on the call. And then Pratt really uh, talked about their experiences and more importantly, sort of went through a checklist that they had developed uh, uh, on policies and procedures that they had implemented uh, in their operations that had been impacted by, by, the, uh, uh, by the pandemic. So then quickly thereafter, uh, start, I started working with Connecticut manufacturers um, who were working to develop and implement safe workplace policies and procedures. And that really became all consuming as we got into sort of the middle of March and the latter part of March. Uh, and there was a tremendous amount of uh, sharing of ideas and best practices uh, and, and, and sort of shamelessly adopting other companies' policies and procedures. And so we, we worked to sort of consolidate those and standardize on best practices and get that out to, uh, to the Connecticut manufacturers who were very, uh, very quick to, to develop and implement those safe workplace procedures. Uh, so much so that um, the, uh, the governor was, uh, was confident when we were, you know, this was all uncharted territory. So, you know, as the pandemic is sort of washing over the state, we're trying to decide, you know, what businesses should stay open, what businesses should close, uh, the ones that are open, what are the rules of engagement? Uh, how can we operate to make sure we keep the public and, and the workforce is safe? Um, I think that the, the Connecticut manufacturers did a really good job of, of developing and implementing workplace uh, safe workplace procedures, so much so that the governor felt confident deeming all of manufacturing in Connecticut as an essential uh, industry sector uh, and allowing all of our manufacturers to continue to operate as the pandemic washed over us. And, and I think uh, his confidence was rewarded uh, that the, the Connecticut uh, manufacturing employers did a really good job of um, ensuring the health and safety uh, of their workers as they continued to uh, operate as the world was sort of melting down around us. Um, so really went from a, a position where I was uh, sort of gathering information and, and trying to set an agenda for looking forward for a couple of years to a role where it was really sort of, you know, reactive uh, and and again, a lot of a lot of new uh, policies, procedures, roles uh, were developed out of out of whole cloth. There wasn't a playbook to pull off the uh, the shelf. We hadn't had a pandemic in a hundred years, and none of us were around for the last one. So it, it was interesting. And then, of course, we we morphed from there into uh, really working with our manufacturers. Uh, well. It became apparent, obviously, to everyone very early on that we had a critical shortage of certain uh, medical equipment and supplies. Most notably, people understand the, the issues with uh, personal protective equipment, but also there were shortages of components that were needed for ventilators and x-ray machines and, and, and the like. We started working first with the state to help them uh, procure what they needed to uh, through uh, sort of more traditional sourcing channels. And then we worked with uh, Connecticut manufacturers who had the, um, the capacity and the capability to pivot to use you know, their capabilities to uh, make uh, products that they historically didn't make uh, to help address some of these critical shortages. 
So again, very fast paced and, 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 and very reactive to a rapidly changing uh, environment. And do you think that part of the difference to it being more reactive is going from private to public sector? How did that differ for you? Because you had spent your life in the private sector, then you're thrown into the public sector. Pandemic aside, how would it have been different? Well, I mean, I don't think the the, the proactive versus reactive is different uh, necessarily a function of the private sector versus the public sector. I think it's more of a function. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, you you know, you go into a fight with a strategy and then you get punched in the nose. And and, and we got punched in the nose and, and really had to react to a different set of circumstances than any of us had dealt with before. So I think that was really what, what drove the reactive. But I, but, but people were great. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Um, again, you know, when the state was having problems, um, uh, you know, securing uh, PPE through sort of more traditional channels, again, we reached out to some of the multinational companies uh, in Connecticut, most notably Raytheon Technologies, mm-hmm. who had operations we knew in Asia. Uh, we needed some boots in the ground over there because everybody was going upstream of everybody else to grab it, just a food fight trying to get access to this. Um, but we knew they had boots in the ground over there. They worked with us. They sent people out to the actual factories where this these medical equipment and supplies were being made and, and really sort of got to the front of the queue. Uh, and then so much so that they they also arranged for, for export and transportation. And ultimately, I think something on the order of $3 million worth of uh, uh, critically needed PP&E, they ended up uh, paying for themselves and donating it to the state. And so that's a, that's a very large example of, of uh, what some of the things that Connecticut manufacturers did to help out. But there, there are scores of other stories of, of companies, again, pivoting to, uh, to address urgently needed, su- needed supplies and equipment. Uh, you know, there, I could do a whole podcast mm-hmm. on them, but we, we uh, uh, you know, we saw some extraordinary efforts on people's parts. Uh, it's just not that easy if you have a business that you've sort of aligned uh, for years to, uh, you know, make certain products uh, uh, with certain capabilities and then just to, to, to turn on a dime and make something different. But, but, but people were, um, it's, it sounds a little cliche, but almost heroic in their, uh, uh, in, in their efforts and, and their outcomes. No, they definitely were. Like you said, if you're used to making something for 50 years and all of a sudden you're tasked with making masks or other PPE, it's not easy and to do it almost overnight was something that um, I think a lot of Connecticut residents were amazed and proud and very happy they could do. Um, You know, I'm sure that's probably one of the most interesting things you saw in your job is that pivot, which was a completely unplanned, but you know, what did you like most about your role um, as chief manufacturing officer? I I think there there are two components. One is the, the, the outreach. Uh, I, I love visiting companies. I call it industrial tourism. The best part of this job is the fact that I get access to these different companies. Uh, I get to um, see the businesses, see the operation, meet with the business leaders, uh, and understand 
you know, what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, and you're in situ there uh, looking at the operations. To me, it's fascinating. I, I learn something every time I go into a facility and then see what's going on. Very much enjoy the ability to uh, meet people that I wouldn't have met sort of in my past life as, a, as an owner and, and executive at, a, at an aerospace business. Uh, you know, it's just some of the, there are some fantastic people. Getting to know the governor uh, is such a personable person, just with a ton of common sense and, and smarts, uh, business smarts. Uh, and then the people that he's brought in, you know, dealing with people like David Lehman, who's so capable, uh, Josh Jabal, who's the state chief operating officer, uh, working with uh, Garrett Moran, who was the initial chairman of the uh, the governor's workforce uh, council. Just really getting to to meet some just excellent people, and then obviously meeting all these business uh, leaders uh, along the way, scores of them. Uh, and then really getting an opportunity to talk with them and understand sort of how they view things and why they do what they do. It, um, uh, it just um, tremendous. Amount. It's like drinking from fire hose. It quenches your thirst, but uh, it's a bit overwhelming at times. But it's uh, to me that those are the best uh, aspects of this job. And when you were touring the state, uh, if you could pick one thing, what do you think is the coolest thing that you saw being manufactured in Connecticut? Boy, I, I saw a lot of cool things. I think that for me, the uh, I, with an aerospace background, and aerospace tends to be sort of high complexity, low volume work. Uh, going in to see the uh, Kleenex facility, Kimberly Clark's facility out in New Milford, which is the northwest part of the state, uh, and seeing the scale of that operation, the fact that they're shipping a million packages of Kleenex a day and supplying all the needs east of the Mississippi, and, and the scale and the investment in the operations that they have there, or going down to... Um, Edgewell in Milford, better known as Schick, where they make Schick razors. Mm -hmm. And just, again, seeing um, the, the process they, they use to make those, uh, those I mean, that is Amer uh, the United States' largest razor uh, factory. And, and um, you're seeing the, the, the process of making the blades uh, and how leaned out that is, how sophisticated that is, but then also the injection molding portion of it, the robotics that they have, again, and the volume scale of what they do there. That, that to me was, I, I really enjoyed seeing that. But what I would have to say, you know, being an aerospace geek, I, I think the coolest <laughs> thing we make in the state, I mean, we make a lot of cool things, helicopters, subs, a, a lot of different things. Uh, but jet engines to me, is, uh, I, I think it's the best. It's the coolest thing that I've seen. What about something that maybe people don't realize is manufactured in Connecticut? There, there are so many companies that I've been to that uh, I'd never heard of before. And I spent my life in manufacturing. We, we have a lot of uh, supply chain companies. So these are not companies that are selling something under their uh, uh, brand name. They're making components or products for larger manufacturers. Maybe they're selling into Medtronics uh, or they're selling into, into Pratt or into one of the automotive OEMs. You know, you, you go into these facilities. Um, when I was younger, I grew, up in, in, I grew up in New Britain, Connecticut, which was at the time called the hardware capital of the world. And, and you'd go downtown New Britain, you'd see these big, large monolithic brick buildings, uh, Stanley Works, Fafner Bearings, the Britain Machine Tools, 
and the like. Uh, and it was sort of front of mind. You couldn't, you couldn't miss it. It was right there. Manufacturing has sort of morphed into more, um, uh, a lot of large companies use very sophisticated supply chains. And so they have uh, a cohort of smaller specialty suppliers that are really good at what they do. And these, these businesses tend to be in, in light industrial parks, light manufacturing out in the, in the suburbs or the outskirts at some, you know, on some road that's a cul-de-sac that doesn't go anywhere. And, and you'd never be going there unless you're going to visit that company. And you go to visit the company and you walk through the tours and you say, oh my God, these guys are making $12 million pieces of equipment and shipping them to Sweden and, and Germany. And again, people living a quarter mile away don't even know the company's there. And, and they were world leader in what they produce. Um, so uh, I, I would say on, on a regular basis, you know, I go in and, and, and see businesses where I'm just, uh, you know, just sort of blown away um, by what they're, what they're doing and how they're doing it there. And how are these manufacturers um, managing the labor shortage? And, you know, what do you think the state has to continue to do to help them succeed in something like we're going through, where not only is there a labor shortage, there are supply chain issues too. Well, I, I think, I mean, you're right. I mean, again, back to sort of, you know, when I started, uh, top issue was uh, access to a skilled workforce, you know, workforce development. And um, so a, a lot has transpired in the last two years on that front. You know, the governor had the, the governor's workforce council. Out of that came the um, the workforce, Connecticut Workforce Strategic Plan, uh, which is a great plan. It's got great initiatives and it's actionable. Um, and then they convened the Office of Workforce Strategy. I headed it up with uh, Dr. Kelly Valeries, who's, who's wonderful. Uh, and she and her team are really charged with implementing that, that strategy. Um, so th there's a lot going on in that front. But, but if you sort of reduce it to its most basic components, I think first we need to you know, get the word out. And all of us in manufacturing are always out there proselytizing. It's not dark, dirty, dull, dangerous. It's clean, lean, and green. And certainly every, every group I get in front of, and I get in front of a lot of chambers of commerce and manufacturing associations and educational groups, I'm always proselytizing. Um, that, that it's, you know, it's not, it's not, manufacturing isn't what people picture it from a generation or two ago. And, and the fact that uh, it uh, not only is the environment, you know, the, these bright, clean, well-organized, well-lit facilities full of millions of dollars of computerized equipment, but they, they, they empower their workers. They're looking for workers' input on how better to run the business in the focus of sort of continuous improvement. You need, you need the people do, who know the, the work the best to, to, to be in the game, but also um, the fact that educating people that manufacturing provides more than good jobs, it, it provides great careers for a spectrum of different, I mean, manufacturing hires people all the way from, from high school graduates through PhDs, and they're varied career opportunities once you get into a manufacturing company. So, so first is get the word out, you know, get that awareness of, of these opportunities. Uh, and then I think the secondly is, um, you know, we have uh, to identify sort of historically uh, under, underutilized pools of talent. And then we have to make sure that that talent has access to the training 
required uh, to allow them to smoothly enter into the manufacturing workforce. Uh, and, and again, there's a lot going on um, in, in, uh, uh, in the Office of Workforce Strategy in terms of trying to get, you know, uh, get people access to that training, get them trained and then into the workforce. But, but you know, Manufacturing business leaders need to get in the game. They, they get it now. It's such a critical issue. People are rolling up their sleeves. They're not, you can't run the old pass patterns. You gotta, you gotta go upstream. You gotta get engaged with the, with the schools uh, and the educators. You gotta get engaged with the parents, uh, help get the word out and, and to get these kids access to the manufacturing environment and then help them get training into the, get them into the workforce and then also get them trained up once they're in the workforce. So, um, you know, everybody's got, uh, there are a lot of different stakeholders who have a role to play uh, and there's no shortage. There's no shortage of opportunity. It's just making sure that, that people understand the career opportunities in manufacturing and that they have access to the training and can get into the manufacturing workforce. In CBIA, we're working on our 2022 policies, uh, priorities, that is policy priorities. And um, I know one of them is to put more uh, funding towards workforce development to hopefully eventually come to a solution for these labor issues. But I know it's going to be a couple of years before we can really solve everything with COVID going on. Now, um, you are about to step down from your role. So want to give you the opportunity to tell us what do you think your biggest accomplishment was while you were in this role? I'm hopeful that the, the one that's going to have the biggest impact is in my role as the uh, board chair for the Manufacturing Innovation Fund. Working with the board there, uh, we developed uh, half a dozen new initiatives uh, that collectively, I think, are really going to move the needle uh, for uh, our manufacturing sector. So they, you know, those those initiatives uh, include uh, uh, a new program to uh, help uh, facilitate uh, companies bringing on engineering interns. We we educate a lot of interns in the state. Excuse me, we en- educate a lot of engineers in the state. We want to increase the yield of those that stay in the state to to begin uh, their career. Um, so we've got a program that's going to be coming online to help our small, mid-sized manufacturers bring engineering interns uh, on, uh, and then hopefully cement those bonds with those uh, students so that they can continue their career there after graduation. Um, we we have an initiative uh, that's going to help companies um, to get access to. Um, uh, an analysis called the Smart Industry Readiness Index that's going to sort of measure the businesses in terms of their uh, adoption of digital technologies and identify specific areas for their businesses where they would be well served, you know, focusing their efforts uh, to bring on uh, digital technology, also known as, you know, Industry 4.0 technologies, and and really provide them with a a roadmap uh, to do so. And we've got some other initiatives in the state, uh, a number of initiatives around digital transformation going on right now. We're going to be uh, putting online a a program to match Connecticut innovators with Connecticut manufacturers, because our feeling is if it's invented here in Connecticut, we want to make it here in Connecticut. We we have a program, uh, I call it the Hearts and Minds Advertising Campaign, again, to uh, get the word out. Uh, for folks that they understand the career opportunities in manufacturing and that they also understand a young person beginning their career in manufacturing 
doesn't mean that they are uh, ending their educational career. Uh, in, in fact, it's quite the opposite. A lot of uh, manufacturing business leaders, and we did this at our company too, if you had a high potential early career uh, employee, frequently we would underwrite the cost of them getting their uh, either undergraduate or, or graduate degree in, in some sort of technical capacity. We're developing a uh, manufacturing website so that manufacturers can access the, the myriad of different programs that are available out there. Um, you know, it, I, I talk with, with people and, and the, I meet, you know, Joe Ercolano from the uh, Connecticut Small Business Development Center. He says, oh, we're Connecticut's best kept secret. Well, we don't want to have any best kept secrets. We have too many best kept secrets. There are literally scores of programs that are available, uh, whether it's for help in environmental or access to capital or exporting, just a, a hiring, training, um, whatever it is. Um, a program doesn't do any good if people don't know about it. And so we want to make sure that it, it's that 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 our 4,000 manufacturers in the state uh, have access to those programs, understand what they are and they can access them. Uh, and then we're also have a program where we're going to be helping underwrite the cost of regional career fairs. This is part of the outreach so that, so again, students understand that, that, that really the, the varied, uh, the different, careers and rewarding careers that are available to them in manufacturing. So I think if, if you're going to take one thing, uh, I think that that package of new initiatives, uh, I'm hopeful it's going to touch on a lot of areas that are really important to our manufacturers in the state. And I have two last questions for you. Um, one, what would be the advice you give to your successor to get a lot of sleep before March? Uh, you know, what are you going to tell them? I, I think I would tell them, uh, you know, try to make sure uh, that you, you, you get um, as many resources as you can. And, and again, uh, I can certainly help the, the, my successor with that. I've developed a lot of relationships. A lot of what I do is through the relationships uh, with people like CBIA, uh, with CONSTEP, with CCAT, uh, and obviously people at DCD, I work very closely with. And, and um, so really getting things done through other people. But, but I would say, you know, try to get the, the resources you can. The other thing I would say is, and this is a piece of advice that I got from somebody that I worked with who had worked at a larger company and rotated through a number of different divisions. And, and they said, you know, get out and, and, and meet people early. And, and I think that, that aligns with, in, in my um, uh, sort of analogous to that, I used to say when I was in the private sector, in our business, we did a lot of acquisitions and, and, and really needed financing to do that. Um, and I always felt that you, you never wanted to go to a bank to ask for money. The first time you meet them is when you're asking them for money. So, so you know, develop those relationships ahead of time. You, you know you're going to need people. I, early in my tenure at the state, you know, I reached out to people like Miguel Cardona, who's another mm -hmm. person I got to meet. He's just a superstar at, at DOE, uh, Katie Dykes and her team at, uh, at Deep, to Marco Jakian. Uh, to Kurt Westby at DOL, you know, reached out to those folks because I knew I was going to be working with them to develop that relationship so that my first call to them wasn't when uh, I was looking when you needed for something. something. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's, this is very much a relationship uh, position. Uh, again, because you need to rely on the other agencies and their resources to get things done. 
some great advice. So hopefully that person is listening. If not, we'll forward this along to them when they officially take office. But my last question is, what is next for Colin Cooper? I see you on a beach somewhere. Um, you know, I, I, I've never been much of a beach person, although it does, it does have its appeal, uh, especially the weather we've been having recently. You, you know, there's a lot of things I'm going to be doing, you know, sort of the cliche, some traveling and, 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 and uh, working on things like my tennis game and golf game, both of which need a lot of work. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay active. Uh, I'm going to remain on the Manufacturing Innovation Fund board. Uh, I'm going to remain on the ACM board. Those are uh, two organizations uh, that are important to me. Uh, I'm, I'm on the board of four different companies in 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 Connecticut. I have uh, ownership positions in in a number of them, so I'll, I'll stay uh, engaged there. Uh, and then I have a, a sort of a number of other things that I'm that I'm thinking of. I I, I uh, have somebody who used to work for me who's who's looking to uh, to buy a business, and and uh, I have a lot of experience doing that, so may may help them out there. Um, I'm not worried about filling my day. My my business partner. Uh, who I was in, uh, worked with for 20 years in aerospace has been retired for two years. He's been tormenting me uh, from the top of uh, ski mountains and uh, uh, lush green fairways around the, the country. So um, uh, he seems to be able to fill his time and I'm, I'm optimistic I'll be able to fill mine. I think you're going to be okay. I think some of the best meetings I've, I've learned from Chris is they happen on the golf course. <laughs> so well, I think my problem is I'm in the woods so much that uh, there's not a lot of time to chit chat. So maybe if I bring my game up a few notches, then, then that'll be a good venue for me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening to this week's BizCast. You can listen and subscribe on YouTube, Apple, or SoundCloud. And for more episodes, visit CBIA.com.